Mrs. James was stabbed 68 times. These are people's lives and deaths. At one point I thought, I can't, I, I can't do this. Like, cops haven't managed to solve this for 37 years. There are too many people. It's kind of like unlocking one door and then another door. You need someone else to open the next door for you. And if you're exchanging doors for people, that's how it works. I broke all the rules, pretty much. There's something that both of you did really well, was really holding power to account. You're a character, whether you like it or not. I'm Louisa Lim. I'm the host of The Masterclass, and today we have a special episode recorded at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. We're exploring the phenomenon of true crime podcasts. and welcome to the Masterclass. This is a live recording of a conversation with two of Australia's top true crime podcasters. Rachel Brown is an ABC journalist whose podcast, Trace, has won a brace of prizes. It's based on a very cold case, the murder 38 years ago of Maria James, who owned a second-hand bookstore. It's an extraordinary investigation, turning up police malpractice, child sex abuse and a series of satanic murders. And there's a new book called Trace Out Now. Our second guest is Richard Baker, who works for The Age. He hosted his first podcast, Phoebe's Fall, with Michael Bachelard, and it won a gold medal at the New York Radio Festival and was downloaded by 1.3 million people. Most recently, he's released Wrong Skin. This is the story of a murder in the Kimberleys 24 years ago. And he says not a single word has ever been written about it until now. Let's start with a video trailer of Wrong Skin. After 24 years of silence, people are starting to talk about the wet season of 1994 and the suspicious death of a young Aboriginal mother and the disappearance of her boyfriend. He's now presumed dead. While investigating what happened to this young couple, I've been drawn into a land where ancient stories and tribal laws collide with a modern native title process worth tens of millions of dollars. Who knows where the money is going and if they're fighting the right fight? I don't think so. It's just greed and money. This is Wrong Skin, a podcast that goes beyond true crime. Like me, you've got to be prepared to leave your comfort zone and come to a part of Australia few of us know enough about. This is about love, power, fear and consequence and telling the untold story of two young people who appear to have paid the highest price for being in love. It, it's been gone too long and, you know, somebody has to stop it. Richard, it's a beautiful, evocative trailer, but I just noticed that you say goes beyond true crime. You've said that you think true crime podcasts are over. Have you kind of got a problem with the true crime label? It's pretty generic, a label, and there's some really good stuff in that genre or category, but there's a lot of crap as well that's cheap, nasty, and kind of just ghoulish, I think, and it trades off the audience that is built to it and offers false hopes or promises and things. So I think that genre's peaked and we've got to serve up more, you've got to go deeper. I and mean, that's what we tried to do with this story, which was obviously has a mysterious element to it from a, a body that has no cause of death still and, uh, and a person who's been missing for that time. Um, but to understand what might have happened to them and why they're at risk, you have to go well beyond true crime, which goes into 
cultural stuff and um, family thing. It's a real mind bend of a thing. But it's good because in telling that story, you can sort of build a bridge between those of us who live in a long way in a completely different environment to that and to what's going on in those little communities and what has gone on. And I know you as well, Rachel, you have problems with this whole idea of true crime podcasts, don't you? In your book, you write about how too many true crime podcasts treat it like a spectator sport. Mm. How did you kind of go about avoiding that? Yeah. So I have a problem with true crime as entertainment. So when Richie talks about going beyond true crime... I think that's really important. So all the podcasts on true stories at the moment that are being done really well, I feel are ones that illuminate wider problems or issues in society. So Richie does it with cultural stigmatisms, property prices. I did it with looking at the power within the Catholic Church, how far its tentacles reach, whether or not Victoria Police had any undue influence on whether certain priests were ruled out of that investigation. So for me, it wasn't about doing a true crime story, it was doing about a story that needed to be told that happened to be true crime. And I think you can do it well. I, like Richie, I worry there's going to be true crime fatigue because I think there are brilliant, important stories that need to be told that I think are best told through the podcast medium, but I'm worried people are going to think, oh, it's another true crime podcast. And I'm worried important stories that are done very well through that medium might not be told if there is that fatigue but I think the way that we can keep doing it is if we do it well like the ages like the ABCs and you choose stories that aren't choosing it solely for true crime but illuminate bigger issues around it and so that's what I tried to do and and keeping it away from entertainment which is just being very careful with the language that we use that it's not too gratuitous around the messaging down to social media like the ABC told me never to release download figures because it felt that it would be seen to be crass to be seen to be celebrating such a tragic story so we've treated the whole thing so carefully but it is disturbing to see others that don't and in doing that it's actually become a meme I don't know how many of you have heard the onions a very fatal murder So it was a podcast taking the piss out of true crime podcasts. So it's amazing to go from true crime podcasts being so popular to now all of a sudden it's it's like it's a parody of itself and that's what I think we need to be careful of. It's really good. (laughs) (laughs) But did you listen to any of it and think, oh, God, I did that? Because I thankfully did Um, it. I I think I was tempted to do some of it, but um, I don't think we... We we never had the money to have an extremely timely homicide locator (laughs) um, that you could attune to different categories of victims and stuff like that. But it it, it did hit the mark and it was a good reminder of what not to do and of the need to offer more than just going in, as as you said, Rachel, a spectator sport on true crime. Um, These are people's lives and deaths. And I think the the beauty in, in a podcast is actually hearing people close to the action or that that has been what's happened to them tell their story so it's not something to celebrate Mm. in that sense and then beat your chest about it's got to be more sensitive than that and that's where the the power comes in so you've got to resist that temptation to be bragging or to say we've done this or this Mm. and that that's not what it's about maybe at this moment we should play the trailer of for trace your podcast so people could get a taste of that. Mrs James, a mother of two boys, aged 13 and 11, 
was attacked while speaking to her former Maria James was murdered at the back of her bookshop on a winter's day in Melbourne. Mrs James was stabbed 68 times in both the front and back and had three gashes in the skull. We begin this podcast on the 37th anniversary of her death. Her murder has never been found. This is Trace. It's a bizarre killing where the woman was tied uh, by her hands and it seemed uh, he was possibly a person who's uh, somewhat a sexual maniac. It was difficult for me to take it all in. It was almost like my life stopped and, and everything just stopped dead. I'm Rachel Brown and I've spent years covering police and court rounds. I heard some talk about something which may have been overlooked in the original investigation of her murder. Later on, I realised that working out of a crime scene definitely wasn't normal. There was a big argument in another language. It was a woman's voice and she was completely distressed. You walk through the shop, which was stacked with secondhand books. There was bloodstains all over the carpet. Was it a scorned lover? He'd had a sexual relationship with Maria. She didn't know he was married and she'd broken off the relationship with him. A random stranger. It may just be part of some ritualistic behaviour. Or was Maria's murder tied up in the sins of the Catholic Church? There's something going on here. This, this church has been involved in the murder of my mum. Next Wednesday, episode one. of characters yeah. there and I think that's one of the astonishing things about your podcast is just how many people you managed to find to talk about something that happened so long ago but including the family the retired detective mm. but even you know people driving past who saw someone standing on the doorstep at that moment yeah I mean how did you kind of sort out who to talk to and how did you find all those people and convince them to talk yeah I mean we can get into the interactivity of it later because I think that deserves a question of its own but at the start I just it was so exhausting because there were so many people and Ronnie Dawes um he was the eyes and ears for me of the start of the investigation because it was his very first homicide case as a plucky 25 year old so he kind of set me on the track of who to go to for initial persons of interest, as they called it. I wanted to look at it through fresh eyes. So there were the certain people that Ron said to me, oh, Brian Ritchie liked this gangster as a person of interest, but I don't think it was him because of ABC. But I still looked at the gangster because I wanted to come at it completely fresh. But the number of dodgy people <laughs> gravitated around this small pocket of High Street <laughs> where this simple lady worked in a bookshop and she devoted her time between her children and her bookshop was staggering to me and at one point I thought I can't I, I can't do this like cops haven't managed to solve this for 37 years there are too many people and then my investigation started leading into the church because the church provided what I'd found so far the strongest motive so I don't think I could have kept going like I was in episode one. Initially, I had seven episodes. And so the first episode was the background to the case. And the second episode was all these seven plus main suspects and then another five on the periphery. But it was too much for one person to chase down all those leads. We kind of narrowed it into, well, where, who has the strongest motive? And for me, or from what I was able to find, because Victoria Police, surprise, surprise, didn't let me anywhere near their cold case boxes, were the two priests. And in your case, Richard, 
you had all these logistical difficulties, didn't you? Because you were covering a story far away yep. in the Kimberleys and you seemed to spend a lot of time driving around looking for people. That's true. It's a big place. Australia's a big place and the Kimberleys are massive and sparsely populated. And you go up there and people say it operates on Kimberley time. So that means if you've arranged to meet someone at the roadhouse at 10 o'clock, it could be 10 o'clock today or it could be 10 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> or if the fishing's good, they mightn't come for three or four days. And you just just got to roll with it and not get too, you know, because we're also schedule-driven and, mm. and all of that. So, yeah, it was, it was difficult. Um, you've got to build trust with people. I mean, none of, none of these people know me from a bar of soap. Um, and so I had to go up and spend time and listen and, and all of that, which is a real privilege to be let in and to do that. But, yeah, it's, it was logistically difficult to do and to find stuff that, like in, in Phoebe's Fall, we had, you know, some archive material. We had a whole coroner's inquest to draw from for supporting material. Uh, obviously, the people who were um, given evidence at the inquest were interview subjects or potential ones. And, you know, you heard in the promo for Rachel's for Trace there, the, the beauty of just even having a news report to frame and give you, take you to that time and place for an incident... And it was really difficult for us to find because there was nothing done on it. There was no archival material to draw upon. So that was a real challenge to think, well, how are we going to get around that? How long did they take to let you in? Like, were you working with them for months before just to, to gain that trust of that community? Yeah, it's kind of like unlocking one door and then another door. You need someone else to open the next door for you. And mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're exchanging doors for people, that's how it works. So someone's got to vouch for you and bring you in and then... you the person they're bringing you to will spend time sussing you out and not tell you that much generally straight away. Uh, often it's done in a... The meetings take place in a, a setting where there might be um, seven or eight people all wanting to talk about all sorts of stuff and, and life's tough up there and there's problems with, you know, native titles, processes a mess and all of this and you're trying to take all this stuff in and not be offensive and it can take hours and then you, you sort of pick off the one person you know you need to 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 talk to and can you say can we ever talk somewhere quiet and you know that's why we did a lot of recording in the car just driving mm. around slowly so that was difficult it took months yeah, yeah months lots of lots of times on the I'm still haggling with Fairfax accounts actually over my mobile <laughs> phone bill um, which they're saying they won't pay uh, and I said well you try maintaining all these relationships in Western Australia for 12 months without exceeding your cap. Mm. It's impossible. <laughs> so I just said, no, anyway, no, I won't get you into that. What my, what my counter threat was, you might see a story about rampant corporate credit, <laughs> credit card abuse. But when Rich, Richie talks about time, I think that's the beauty of the podcast because you couldn't do this on a daily news churn. I dealt with a lot of rape victims, survivors of rape within the Catholic Church and I couldn't have the relationship that I have with them on a, on a daily news thing. You know, I would never approach them. I'd approach their, you know, family member or a victim's advocate who would then approach them or I'd write them a card and we'd wait two or three weeks for them to get back to us and it might be a no or it might be a yes. Sometimes on the day they'd change their mind and say, I'm not having a good day. PTSD is not so great today. So we'd wait another week. And so that's what, what is so important about the podcast genre, I guess, that it allows you that time to do things properly. And you mention in your book this quote from Janet Malcolm about journalists, mm. which I thought was so interesting, especially sort of in the light of true crime podcasts. And she describes every journalist as a kind of confidence man 
preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse. I mean, surely it must have been really hard for you because what you're doing is asking people to, in many cases, excavate like the worst moment of their life, yeah. and there are mental costs to that for them. How did you...? Yeah, I've got so much I can say about that. So I don't feel that that quote is necessarily true. I think that depends on the type of journalist you are, and I think that comes down to the type of human being you are. So I would always think, well, how would I want to be treated if, I, if this had happened to me? And I think just if you go into every interaction like that, as a journalist, is the best thing that you can possibly do and the best service you can possibly give them. A lot of the survivors I would open with, well, what do you want to tell me? So a lot of them have been robbed of power, so giving them that power back is such an empowering thing for them. So with Rex, for example, who was abused by Father Bongiorno, I just said, you steer Rex, you tell me what you want to tell me. Because they're talking to a complete stranger and I cauterised my investigation into three. So the cold case, Father Bongiorno and Father O'Keefe. And I didn't tell survivors or victims of each of those streams that I was investigating the other two because I didn't want them telling me what they thought that I wanted to hear. I wanted untainted accounts. So effectively, these, these men who've been shown such little compassion in their youth were giving me these awful stories to help a family that they didn't even know. I just, I, all I'd said to them was, you might be able to help a family. And that just blew me away, which is a big reason why I did the book, because podcasts are brilliant, but the, the limitation of the medium is that we tried to get it under half an hour episode. So a lot was cut out and the broader stories of some of the sexual abuse survivors weren't told. And I thought, well, a book might be a way to do their stories more justice and, and tell their entire stories because they were so brave, the stories they gave to me. And does anyone watch You Just Can't Ask That on the ABC? Mm. They did an episode recently with sexual abuse survivors and there was a guy that was speaking, Dr Stuart Kidd, and I thought, oh, he reminds me exactly... I won't say which survivor, but he reminds me exactly of a guy that I interviewed who's in the book, same speech pattern, same cadence, slow, measured, thoughtful. He'd been raped repeatedly as a child in a foster family. And I thought, good on you, you've got the guts to go on national television. You're obviously you're working through your demons and them giving you a voice is empowering you. And then at the end of it, and I always get upset when I talk about this, at the end of it they flicked up a black screen saying, RIP Dr Stuart Kidd, and he'd mm. killed himself in March this year. And that made me think, like, what if we think that we're doing them a, a service by giving people a voice? And you hope that, I hope that I have, but sometimes the pain doesn't go away for some people. Mm. So my book was a way of trying to, trying to give these other people a stronger voice and, and bear witness to their pain, as well as the James Boy's pain, obviously, but to tell the, the broader story of what was going on in society at the time. And in your case as well, Richard, you were giving a voice to a community I think that we very rarely actually hear from. How did you sort of go about talking about these things? And I'm wondering, how did you navigate? There must have been, I know that Indigenous practices do not like talking about people who have died, calling them by name and things like yeah. that. That must have been quite hard uh, to navigate and, you know, to do this respectfully. Yeah, well, well it is and it was. Um... So you just be open about what mm. you're doing and explain. I mean, a lot of the people, a lot of the people in that we featured in Wrong Skin had never heard of a podcast or listened. Mm. So tried to show them what what it is or explain. It's like when you turn the radio on and you hear a radio doc. You know, you hear 
on that. And actually, I got a funny phone call. So now everyone up there is a podcast fan. They love podcasts <laughs> now. And I heard a funny story. A guy rang me and said, oh, yeah, all the elders in Fitzroy Crossing were talking the other day about uh, podcasts. Have uh, you been listening to that thing through the telly? They're going like that. And they're saying, whatever way it's working, it's working. And um, so that was cool. But to, you've got to take a lot of time. And, and you're right, you know, talking about people who've passed away and really personal stuff because we're talking about communities where people are interrelated by blood often but then also through this concept of skin and kinship Mm -hmm. relationships which is you could study here for probably 20 years and still not get to the bottom of understanding the complexity of but they felt like it was time to do it you know and a lot of other bad stuff has sort of been rumbling away that's probably linked back to that event back in 1994 so it was just a matter of saying, look, if you want to tell it, you're, what you're telling me is really, really powerful, but right now I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then before we went to air, if you like, or, or released the episodes with, with characters, I'd either ring them or, or send them a copy of uh, the transcript and all the stuff we were going to use and in what context so they could say, no, that's not what I meant or whatever. So took every step we could to be, I guess, aware of the, the dangers and be respectful without um, censoring ourselves or the story at the same time. Because that kind of copy approval is something that we don't, as journalists, you wouldn't do. But yeah. as a podcaster, do you think, and particularly given the sort of personal nature of the material, do you think different, different rules apply? It depends on, your, on the subject, the subjects and the subject matter. But in this case, obviously, we're dealing with a pretty vulnerable population where talking out, I mean, you can see how remote it is. There's real consequences for, for saying stuff, particularly against some of the more powerful figures up there. It's pretty violent. Um, and there is reprisals, not only physical, but, you know, if, they, if you st- if believe in the traditional stuff or whatever, there's a real concern about spiritual reprisals and payback and stuff like that so yeah we I guess took a really soft approach in terms of a normal journalistic way of handling source and and level of interaction beforehand Um, but only only as a protective mechanism really. And what about you Rachel did you also kind of operate differently than you would as an ordinary journalist, yeah, an ordinary I, journalistic work. Mm, I broke all the rules pretty much. So <laughs> we, we're not supposed to get attached to the people that we're working with. I did. I couldn't help it. So how many people have listened to the podcast just out of interest? So I can... Great. Wow, that's almost Thank everyone. You. <laughs> um, Mark and Adam James, who were 13 and 11 when Marie James was murdered... She was murdered a couple of months before I was born, and so I can't imagine going my entire life without answers to something like that. So they really resonated. Their pain resonated strongly with me. They're two of the most gracious men I've ever met. Um, I think we'll be talking about Adam in depth a bit, a bit later on. Yeah, so I got really close with them because I really feel for them. And I don't, I'm not going to apologise for that because I think... We need to be objective as journalists, and I think I remained objective, but I don't think that means that you can't be emotional. And I feel like Trace was stronger for the fact that I did care, because I'm not a robot, you're not a robot, you know. So I, I feel like it, it, we, I couldn't have done this clinically. 
I also broke the rules by sending people, and I did this for the book as well, sending people their sections, so what I was going to air with. And that was primarily because a lot of it was horrific accounts of rape. And so I wanted to be sure that these survivors were comfortable with what was going to go out there in the world. In the book, I sent them their sections and said, do you want the pseudonym changed? Do you want this bit taken out? Do you want anything put in? Which created a hell of a lot more work. And it meant that most writers would be finessing the craft. And my priority was just making sure that these survivors who were brave enough to give me their stories were comfortable with what was in the book and what was in the podcast. James Shanahan's an interesting one because I did show him... And James Shanahan... Sorry. Uh, ..was the the man who was involved in accusations against the church of uh, satanic rituals, and he was actually given quite a large payout, wasn't he? Mm, yeah, was so... $33,000. Yeah. <laughs> so James Shanahan was abused by Father O'Keefe. Um, Father O'Keefe was the other priest at St Mary's who also abused Adam James. And I learned about this, which is why I started looking into O'Keefe. But James Shanahan claims that he was, as well as abused torturously by Father O'Keefe, he was inducted into a satanic cult in which four people were murdered. And I, when I heard that, I thought, shit, people are going to question my credibility. They'll question his credibility. So the way I did that was I went through how many other people I spoke to to corroborate his claims. I mean, there's no way... I can prove that, obviously, but I guess it's like faith. You can't prove that God exists. I took him at his word and I interviewed his psychiatrist. I interviewed the police detective that interviewed him. I interviewed the independent commissioner for the Catholic Church. And because of that, that was a rigorous thing that I did because I thought, well, people will see how much trouble I've gone to, so they'll believe him. But the reverse happened. He said, oh, it made, you, it made me look like you didn't believe me. And I said, James, you wouldn't be in there if I didn't believe you. And that was why I put the Janet Malcolm quote in, because that was one of the deepest cuts in doing Trace, that the person that I was trying to help ended up resenting me. Where our relationship is back on track now. And, you know, he said that he thinks that PTSD reared its ugly head and you never know when it's going to happen and it's a terrifying thing that you... It's like art. You can put it out into the world, but you never know how it's going to be received. So even though he knew what I was going to be saying, once it was out there, it was, it was quite a scary thing. You did have an extraordinary level of trust from your interviewees, and I think maybe we'll play a mm. quote from Adam James, the younger of the two James brothers who has cerebral palsy. And it's the moment when he describes his abuse by a priest, it's, it's quite a, a very distressing moment. But it's, I think it also shows the kind of relationship that you had with your interviewees. Uh, so we might play this. It starts, I think, with the retired detective Ron Idles talking. Adam, I guess, in early days, was probably ignored. Uh, and, and that might be uh, an error in the whole investigative process. Uh, Adam, somebody who has a... A disability um, he's quite often uh, hard to understand because of his uh, disability but he has a brilliant brain so I think we often uh, characterize people and put put them in a certain category and would have, would have thought well what would Adam know when the reality is Adam might have had the whole the whole answer and uh, it wasn't until I took the statement off him uh, that that was the first time that I'd had a lengthy conversation with him. 
This is the first time Adam has spoken publicly about what Father Bongiorno did to him. It's sometimes hard to follow what he's saying, but stay with him. Um, I remember um, he said to me, Adam, um, can you come with me? Um, And I don't want you to tell um, your mum I'm back. Adam says he remembers Father Bongiorno leading him into a room behind the altar. He told me to pull my pants out halfway and he... Then he put his hand down there. The abuse was interrupted by the sound of footsteps. It was Maria coming to collect him. And he said to me, Adam, now remember what I told you. And he said to my mom, Maria, I'll be seeing you. It's just such a powerful moment. But I guess I was also wondering about the ethics of including that, why you decided to make the decision Mm. to sort of air that publicly, why you felt that was necessary for the story. We actually left a lot out, so that wasn't the worst of it. Adam got quite upset, and I think the best grab from him, the ABC wouldn't let me use because they said he sounds too distressed, and I said, well, of course he is. His mother's been murdered, and it might be because she discovered his abuse. I left in, in tears that day because I, I'm just and still furious at the betrayal of their family. Father Bongiorno was supposed to be looking after him and he abused him and then he handed him over to be abused by another priest. And Mark James just says about that, you know, what was he, like some kind of buffet for them? You know, it's repulsive. And I did a, um, a talk with Ron Eadles in Cairns last week because he's living up there now, and he started crying when he was talking about Adam and how he, they didn't listen to him, or they didn't ask him any questions when he was little, and Ron still feels so guilty about that because it wasn't done back then. It's, they were, it was thought that kids wouldn't know anything and also Adam had cerebral palsy and Tourette's, so they felt it would be too distressing to interview him. I put it in because I think it's important because I do think he holds the key to this case. He's got a brilliant brain. When he was younger, apparently, he could recite, watch a movie once, watch all the credits and then recite all the credits with his back to the television. I think he's betrayed by his stutter. I think people assume that he's not intelligent when he is. That interview that I did with him, I spent about maybe three hours with him and probably got five minutes of of usable audio. He stutters a lot and when it got too hard, he would drop into third person. So I was the girl in the green top, he was the boy and Maria was the mother of the boy. And this I find fascinating on a psychological level because he would change my questions to, I would say, who do you think killed your mum? And he would change it to, who does the boy think killed the mother of the boy? But then it had to be worded just so as well. So he would have to say the word first and then I would parrot it. So who, who, does, does, that, that, boy, boy, think, think. So this took forever. And it wasn't, it didn't happen that way for the whole three hours, but when the questions got really hard, that's how we did it. And I didn't understand what he was meaning at first, so it took a while for me to understand. But once I fell into his rhythms, it flowed. I mean, I had to stop the tape a couple of times to give him a breather because it's so distressing. 
But one of the things I'm most proud about of Trace and the podcast and the book is that it let Adam speak for Adam. So a lady at Autism Australia wrote this beautiful piece about Trace saying that that's what she thought was the, the strongest bit about Trace was that it gave Adam a voice and it let him speak for himself because for so many years other people speak for him, whether it's Mark or whether he doesn't get a voice at all because the cops didn't interview him. So I think Adam's the true hero of Trace. <coughs> And, I mean, also in your work, Richard, you were giving a whole community a voice. Did you have material that you sort of felt that you couldn't use in order to protect them? Yeah, obviously not as raw and intimate as what Adam shared. But, yeah, we did have some things that that had uh, challenges, I suppose, for us editorially, but also, again, wanting to not be so intrusive. And there was a passage, I think, in... um, the fourth episode of Wrong Skin, where one of the characters, Wayne Watson, who is a guy who actually I was told to ring by a person who actually got me onto the story and he sort of was my entree into this world and he shared his true parentage down by the river one day and he got out this little notebook and it was a letter written by his real birth mum or a note written by his real birth mum before she died um, a couple of, well, not that long ago, she explains who his real father is and, and all of that sort of stuff. And he got, as you'd understand, very emotional reading that. And initially in our first kind of cut and draft of that particular episode, because it was really powerful, we let it run for a while and I felt that it was almost too much. And so still wanted to have that in there because he was giving himself and he wanted that out there because it was him affirming his identity but we pulled it back to about 30 seconds and I still hope and feel that it maintained its raw its power and emotion but almost you know saved him I don't know because people get so worked up you you want to protect mm-hmm. people from themselves in a sense as well and I don't know whether that's right or wrong of of me to do that but that was an example of us grappling with a similar scenario and I noticed that another thing that you did, which is kind of goes against the journalistic grain, was often kind of putting yourself there, talking about your own reaction to things, and also sometimes admitting that you didn't really understand a lot of these indigenous practices, you know, that it was hard to kind of not just come to terms with them, but to explain them. Yeah, oh, well, it, it was, and I think you want to be authentic with your audience and, and not pretend or be a fraud that you're an expert or you know stuff you don't know. And so for me, the whole thing was a massive learning curve as well, and I wanted to inject a little bit of that in the in the story for that the, the reasons of authenticity and and share. And also I think from time to time, because you're a character, whether you like it or not, in yourself, it's good to share how you feel about a certain thing. So a concept in our story was this concept of promising out girls or young women to much older men, which was still but you know a practice back in 1994 in some communities up there. And it's like betrothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you ask some of the, the women about it there and they... they don't didn't like it but that was how how it was and I found it my daughter just turned 11 the other day and I instantly thought of her about you know when she's 14 or 15 and all of a sudden that she's told you're 
your promise to this guy and he's 55 or 60 or whatever. And there was a few fears at work about us being culturally insensitive there. And I'm going, well, I've spoken to some of the women and the mothers there and they don't really like it either. And I thought, well, it's a really important part of the story because Julie, the female victim, Julie Buck, in our story was in a promised relationship and didn't want to be in that relationship and had made a conscious choice to be with a guy her own age and she's ended up dead under a tree. So we couldn't ignore it and I couldn't ignore my own feeling that I was torn between questioning something that I don't know enough about um, but also how it made me feel. So we tried to just put it on the table and I was prepared and am prepared to wear some criticism for that but I'd also say, well, don't just listen to me. Why don't you go and talk to some of the females up there and see how they feel about it as well. And one of the reasons you concluded that the couple ended up dead was this idea of wrong skin, of being in a relationship they weren't allowed to be in. Um, and maybe we can listen. I think we have a clip about this idea of wrong skin, why this was a forbidden relationship. Though there's much in this story unfamiliar to those of us from non-Indigenous backgrounds, the one thing we can all relate to is being young and infatuated with someone. Richard's brother, Wayne, remembers the couple's relationship like this. But in that time, like teenagers, you know, like, you know how teenagers were they? Yeah. You can't stop them. <laughs> yeah, can't stop them. Yeah. And that's what they were like? Yeah. That was like that, yeah. And that would prove to be a massive problem because their relationship their bush marriage was forbidden under traditional laws. It made them wrong skin. So every, every tribe has skin groups, and that's part of the marriage system. I mean, was it a concern for you that in many cases you were getting people on air who were criticising their own Indigenous practices, whether it be sort of wrong skin relationships or the idea of promised marriages, promised relationships or the meeting out of traditional law. Was it a concern for you that they might then get criticised within their own communities for publicly talking about these practices in a critical way? Yeah, it was, but... There's been a lot of... There's a lot of bad stuff that happens when people don't say anything either. And if we don't have a discussion, if you don't create a discussion around something, nothing changes. And no culture in the world is, is immune from scrutiny, uh, reflection, change. And it's the way you go about it, I think. And it's not me hectoring or anything there. We're actually hearing from people who understand it and and live in it, and this is their view of stuff. It doesn't make it totally right, totally wrong. But for this particular story, it was a fundamental element. We had to try and explain and try and uh, get across because it was a big factor in why their relationship was causing trouble for them. But also human nature, I think, played a big role, and that's got nothing to do with culture or your colour of your skin. I mean, I think simple jealousy might have been a, a factor too, that there was a, some powerful people or a bunch of people who um, thought that this particular girl, you know, they wouldn't mind a crack, to be blunt, and things got massively out of hand. And, you know, I've learnt and spoken to a lot of people that even, even if you are, and there's a lot of people in the Kimberley that have had or are in 
wrong skin relationships who are obviously still alive. For those ones who have been punished for it, some of them, I was talking to someone the other day on the phone, they're back accepted into their community. They might have copped a, a flogging or a whatever, but it didn't go as far as this. You know, this is pretty rare that if, if that's the reason for her death and for the presumed death of Richard, her boyfriend, then that's out of line and I'd defy anyone to justify that. Um, and I'd be happy to be challenged on it any day of the week. So, I mean, I think there's something that both of you did really well was really holding power to account, whether it be the Catholic Church, the police force or the Kimberley Land Council. But did you have a moment where you thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I've opened this massive can of worms that is not going to go away? Yeah, yeah, a number of times. I never started out on Trace thinking that I would solve it, but I thought I could attract through interactivity someone who could solve it and that I could pass a lot of information on to the police. And I went into it quite green, thinking that this would be brilliant, I'll get all these leads and I might have 100 emails about a white car. And I said that to the detective when I was trying to convince him about the power of podcasting and putting it out on the ABC. And he said, yeah, but Rach, then I'll have to look through 100 emails about a white car. And that, to me, was a light bulb moment when I thought, oh, shit, they don't have the time and they don't have the resources and they probably see me as a pain in the bum. Like, they do have bigger fish to fry. Mm. The murder, this was 38 years ago, so they do their cold case work around their other daily jobs. So I was a bit of a thorn in, in the side, I think, when I thought that I was going to be a great help. I thought, oh, they'll welcome a, a spare pair of hands. My three caveats were getting the blessing of Mark James, Ron Idles, and Ron said, I need the blessing of Vic Pohl, so I went to Victoria Police. Stephen Fontana, who was the Assistant Commissioner, graciously said, I think this is a good idea. And then I went to the Head of Homicide thinking, brilliant, I'll have access to materials, I'll have access to detectives. And he said, well, I don't care what my boss says. I don't want you having anything to do with my detectives and it's an active case. So it, was, it meant that the work was very difficult and... I don't know whether you've got the audio about the DNA bungle, but the moment that I found out that there might have been a bungle in this case was the most disheartening for me because I went into it thinking I'll at least get answers. And it mightn't be the answers that they want, but at least it'll be answers. And when I found out that the pillow that they'd been using for the last 16 years to rule in or out suspects was from a completely different crime scene, had nothing to do with Marie James, Again, I burst into tears because I thought, well, that's, there's nothing, that's it. This discovery delivers hope and then crushing defeat in the same microsecond. Hope because it means the DNA comparison that ruled out Father Bongiorno could be invalid. That means Father Bongiorno, who was seen covered in blood on the day of the murder, could be back in the frame. But it also means the police may not have the DNA of the killer, and DNA was the best hope of solving this case once and for all. I can't ever solve this, cops can't ever solve this unless there's DNA from the scene. I didn't realise going in, you know, all my hopes were around that because I'm, I don't think anyone's going to come forward with a written confession or say father so-and-so told me that he did it. So my hopes were banked on DNA. Yeah, and I just thought, oh, it, well, it could have been Father Bongiorno, but we'll never know because... There's no DNA from the crime scene. So they've been currently going through her exhibits and retesting and they have found traces of something, um, which they're saying are too low grade to test. So now my next being a pain in the ass for Vic Pohl is, is trying to put pressure on them to send it to a low level 
DNA testing lab somewhere. There's a guy who does it in South Australia. So that's my next mission. I don't think I've been in the danger that Richie and like Nick McKenzie have been in because I'm not working on a current case as such. So the personal danger factor isn't as large. But there have been things that have happened that have made me wonder if I'm safe and if the case is safe because things disappear. Mm. Um, documents have disappeared. Documents I know exist, I'm being told under FOI, aren't there. When I first pitched this to the ABC, that was, I think that was part of the reason why it took so long to get up because I was effectively going to take on Victoria Police and the Catholic Church. I mean, what about you, Richard? Did you think that going into it that you would find the answers? I thought we'd shake things loose. There's limits on what you think personally and what you can actually say publicly and things like that. So, Because um, in your final episode, you put forward a hypothesis. Yeah. Say, this is what I believe happened. And Yeah, I'm more than ever convinced in my mm. hypothesis. We all know, um, and for very good reason, to get even approval to charge someone with a murder, particularly when you haven't got one body which offered up no DNA evidence because it was exposed to the elements for so long, and another one that um, is still out there somewhere. It's really hard, and let alone passage of time, memories, cultural things, even language issues. I mean, you need to get uh, an interpreter for a statement. All these things make it really difficult to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And that's a frustration, but that's the law and it's there for a good reason because we don't want people getting wrongly convicted Mm -hmm. either. But I think throughout the series we managed to find that there was different levels of law depending on who you are up there, and I'm talking about uh, white law in terms of outcomes for actions that would have people of lesser standing in a community or without as much political power going to jail as opposed to those with the power and resources at their disposal to get off very, very lightly. And I think that's worth highlighting um, because obviously that's unfair. We're almost out of time, so I'll just ask one final question to finish up. For both of you, uh, what is next? Are we going to get any final answers? Are there any more episodes? Are there any other developments that haven't yet been covered? Um, Yeah, I'm hopeful we'll have at at least one more. There's things happening. I don't know exactly what, but there's certainly some some action up there and I'm looking forward to getting back up one more time. I told my editor last week, actually, at a, an age subscriber's night, I broke the news to him that it looks like I might have to make a fourth trip back up and I saw his, um, <laughs> the, the dollars running over <laughs> in his head. So, for, yeah, for that, I hope there's another one. And then it's just obviously keeping an eye on things and looking forward to finding the next really good story to get stuck into and the next good way to tell it. I wouldn't mind trying to do something else other than podcasts. There's still a lot more to do on Trace for me. Leads keep rolling in that I keep following up. Victoria Police admitted to that DNA bungle, so that was a huge step forward in this case. The coroner is currently considering whether to reopen the case. There's been some, I won't bore you with it, but some jurisdictional wrangling since July last year. And so largely because of things like Trace and Phoebe's fall, the Attorney-General last month came out and introduced a law into Parliament to say that the coroner does have the power to review historical cases. 
So we've created or we helped create, this pressure has helped create legislative change. So in the next couple of months, I'm hoping the coroner sets a date to hear argument on why Marie James's case should be reopened. So that's that case. And then I've started to look into a case uh, for Trace 2, another Melbourne one. Similar vein amplifies other issues, other societal issues that we need to be talking about. So thank you both so much. We'll be looking forward to all of these developments. For anybody who hasn't listened to either of these podcasts, any of these podcasts, I would very much recommend that you do. They're just such gripping, fantastic investigative reporting. And don't forget to buy Rachel's book on your way out. She will sign it for you. So thank you all for coming. And thank you, most of all, to our two guests tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. The Masterclass is produced and edited by Louisa Lim, Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. This episode was recorded by Gavin Neighbour at the University of Melbourne. The original concept is by Anders Furs, the music is by Susie Wilkins, and it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>